Uh, let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Alone, our God belongs to the highest praise. Uh, help us, help us to do that right now as we as we look at this passage of scripture. Your word given for us. Uh, may we may we hear uh, what you have to say to us. Would you give uh, our hearts life to respond to what you say? That the that the, the result of what we do now, that what we do now and the result of it would be that the praise goes to you. And we need your help. Amen. Uh, the world we live in is a dangerous place. And so I thought I'd better do some investigation on that. So I searched on the internet about everyday dangers. And I found a website which is called something like everydaydangers.com. Top of the list, um, non-stick pans. Be careful of those. I'm um, also on the list, not actually too far from the top, is antibacterial soap. In fact, most of the things on the list were some kind of cleaning product, um, which made me realise cleaning is a very dangerous thing. And so that's why I tend to avoid it. Um, yeah. Um, but I, I tell you what wasn't on the list of everyday dangers. Um, I wasn't. And I don't think any of you were either. Uh, is that an omission? Um, are you dangerous? Uh, do you get out of bed in the morning and think, today I am a danger? Or, or, or maybe let me ask it like this. Um, would you want to be dangerous? Do you want to be a danger? Uh, I guess there are two ways to be a danger. Uh, one is to be dangerous like an old rotting bridge, um, which is a danger to the safety of anyone who walks on it. Or, or you could be... Um, Dangerous like antiviral medication, uh, which is a danger to the virus to which it is exposed. Um, and our passage this morning uh, puts before us two dangers, uh, two contrasting dangers, and we will look at them in turn. Uh, first of all, there is a dangerous delusion. Now, we're in the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, um, uh, and these churches, uh, I'll put them on the map here, there we go, uh, kind of in modern day Turkey. Uh, that kind of area there, zooming in. Uh, this, this is the kind of area where Paul went to. You read about it in Acts 13 to 14. Uh, Paul went to these places. He told these, these various about the Lord Jesus, the good news about the Lord Jesus, and he was met with a mixed response. Uh, in one place, he was, he was thrown out. Another place, he was threatened. The next place, they stoned him. Um, but in every place, people heard the message, and they believed, and there were new churches started. Uh, but then Paul moved on, and, and pretty much as soon as he went away, a crisis occurred. Uh, and that's why we have this letter in our Bibles today, because when Paul heard about the crisis, he sat down and he wrote to them. Uh, he wrote about the problem, and we see the problem straight away. If you glance back to chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. And Paul went there, he told them the gospel, they believed the gospel, he moved away and then they moved on to something else. And Paul writes to them because he wants them to see the true gospel and to see how much it matters. You see, it seems that what has happened, in, you see in chapter 1 verse 7, uh, that there are these people, some people, these troublemakers, um, who have come into the church in Galatia and are causing problems. And, and as we read through the first couple of chapters, we can piece together what these troublemakers are saying about Paul. 
Uh, These troublemakers are saying, the guy Paul who came to you, he got the message from the apostles in Jerusalem, and then he took it away from Jerusalem to places where there are non-Jewish people. Uh, And when he went to places with non-Jewish people, he adapted the message. He, He changed it. He watered it down. He made it easier. But when he did that, he missed out vital things you have to do if you want to be saved. They were saying, Paul, he's he's broken away from the source. He is at odds with the church in Jerusalem. Well, what Paul says in chapter one, as he begins to tell what really happened, he says, that is not a true account. That's not what happened. He didn't learn the message from others. In fact, for Paul, something unique happened. Uh, Before he was saved, Paul was a man who hated Christians. He, He was hunting them down, trying to get them thrown into prison or even killed. Uh, But on his way to Damascus, he's on a trip to find Christians and get them arrested. On his way to Damascus, uh, he met the living Lord Jesus. um, And that changed everything for him. Uh, But he says when that happened, we see in chapter 117, he didn't consult. It wasn't until um, three years later that he, he went up to Jerusalem just for a flying visit. And he said at that time that the churches, the Christians in Judea, they didn't really know him. They heard about him, but they didn't have a relationship with him. Now, when, when we get to the end of chapter one, you could hear Paul's opponents in Galatia beginning to say, well, well there you have it, don't you? But Paul's message and the Jerusalem message, they're not joined up. They're not connected. Paul hasn't got a connection with them. Now, imagine sitting in one of these churches, maybe in, in Pisidian Antioch, and, and you're having this conversation. You say, are we believing the right thing? So important, isn't it? Have we actually got the saving message? It's a bit like maybe being lost in a kind of network of underground tunnels. And you've got a map that shows you how to get out, and you're following the map. But as you follow the map, someone comes along and says, about that map... About that map and the guy who gave it to you, I'm not sure it's reliable. He, he, he's just copied the, the map down from another map and he's, he's not done a very good job of it. You have to get a better map, something more genuine, more authorized, a bit more kind of ordnance survey rather than back of the serviette type thing. So in the church in Pisidian Antioch, they're saying, are we following the right map? Because there are people saying, Paul, who brought you the message, he's missed out crucial bits. He has a different map to what they follow in Jerusalem. Imagine being in that conversation, the doubts that would, would, be, would be rising up, the confusion spreading. Well, in Galatians 2, Paul continues his story. It says 14 years later, he did visit Jerusalem. In fact, we can put a bit of a timeline up. Uh, some people like these kind of things. Uh, these, these are the kind of years that are being covered in, back in the first century after Jesus has risen and ascended. Uh, first of all, we have Paul's um, conversion on the Damascus Road, not long after Jesus, um, Jesus rose. Um, and then he went and made his 15-day visit to Jerusalem. And then um, the, the Titus visit, which is what we read in Galatians 2. And then Paul went to Galatia. Then Paul writes Galatians. And then something called the Jerusalem Council. Um, now, we read about that in Galatians in these passages here. It'll all be there. There we go. And we can read about it in Acts as well, in Acts 9, where Paul was converted, Acts 11, and the visit which we're reading about today, Acts 13 to 14, when Paul went to Galatia, and Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. Paul said, 14 years later, I went to Jerusalem. Why did he go? And this one, the Titus visit. Why did he go? He says, verse 2, I went in response to a revelation. You can read about it in Acts 11. Um, um, 
Paul is in a place called Antioch, not Galatian Antioch. That's a bit confusing, a different Antioch. Um, and there are some prophets who came. Uh, one of them called Agabus predicted there would be a severe famine across the world. Uh, and that did happen. Um, and the church in Antioch decided they would provide help for the Christians in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas are chosen to take the gift. And so Paul is on this errand to take this gift to the poor in Jerusalem. And when he's there, he takes an opportunity to have a private meeting with some of the church leaders. That's what he says, verse 2. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running nor had not been running my race in vain. Now, after Galatians 1, Paul is not doubting that he has the genuine message. Uh, He's not looking for a stamp of approval, but Paul and the Jerusalem church are preaching a different gospel. It would wreak havoc across the Christian world. And so Paul has this private meeting. He presents to them the gospel he's preaching and the outcome in verse 6. They added nothing to my message. Added nothing. In fact, in verse 7, they recognize Paul's authority, his mission, and they um, affirm their fellowship together. That's what happened on that visit. And yet in the midst of all this, there is this dangerous delusion. What is a dangerous delusion? Uh, There's a guy, and recently a a basketball player called Russell Westbrook, who has been accused of having a dangerous delusion. It'd be worth finding out what this dangerous delusion is. His dangerous delusion is that he thinks he's better than he is. I'm not sure that's dangerous or really that uncommon, is it? I'm not sure that's a dangerous delusion. A dangerous delusion is if you think you can fly and so you jump off a cliff. That's a dangerous delusion. And what we have in our passage is a dangerous delusion. Paul was in Jerusalem, having this meeting, and this controversy began to bubble up. Paul was there with Titus. We don't know too much about him. Um, He's a believer. He's not Jewish. And Paul says, Titus was there in this meeting as we were talking about what the gospel is. And he said, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. It's the first time that circumcision is mentioned in this letter. It's a a huge deal. We'll see quite a lot about it in the coming weeks. Uh, Circumcision uh, is from the Old Testament. It was a, a badge of membership of God's people. Um, The Jewish men were circumcised to show they belong to God's people. But now, what is going to happen when somebody like Titus, or or the church in Galatia, or or us even, uh, if non-Jews believe in Jesus, want to be part of God's people, uh, what do you do? It's a bit like when if you want to go on a train and you come to the barrier and you have to have the ticket to put into the barrier to get you in. You need to have the ticket. And and people say, well, this is what you need. It's so clear circumcision is the ticket. If you want to be in, you have to have the right ticket. And circumcision is what it is. And so if Titus, if he he wants to come in, he's he's welcome to come in. He just needs to have a ticket. So so he needs to get circumcised. It's, It's obvious, isn't it? Well, it was a huge problem, a huge problem that would bubble around for a number of years. Um, At the Jerusalem Council, which I mentioned, which happened shortly after Paul wrote this letter, and this was the issue. Uh, Acts, Acts chapter 15 says there are people, certain people who are saying this. Unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And they're kind of right with that. Kind of right if, if, you, if in the sense that circumcision is 
just the beginning and represents obeying everything that God has ever said. Now, if you want to be saved, what you need is perfect obedience to what God has told us. And and yet, if you really want to talk about the law of Moses and circumcision, you need to go back to the law of Moses. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the law of Moses. What God requires is perfect obedience. It's summed up in you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. You love God perfectly. And then it says immediately after that, the only way to do that is to have your heart circumcised. You need a complete inner renewal. Right from the law of Moses, circumcision from the beginning was a reminder that you need pure obedience. And in the law of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says you cannot do this. You will not do it. You cannot have salvation that way. But in the law of Moses, God himself promises that he will do it. He will circumcise hearts. Saving life will come from God and only from God. And that's the message of the gospel. And and that the message of the gospel is this saving life has now come. Now, Paul summarizes it at the beginning of the letter. If you glance over to chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God, through Christ, rescues people from sin for his glory. God, through Christ, rescues people from sin for his glory. That was the same thing that Moses said in Deuteronomy. Salvation is about what God does for sinners, not what sinners do for themselves. And so in our passage in verse 3, Paul's there. He's with the leaders of the Jerusalem church presenting the gospel he preaches. And there is Titus, an uncircumcised believer. And he's not compelled to be circumcised because you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. But why has the issue come up at all? In verses 4 to 6, Paul's language is, is pretty jagged. Uh, the grammar is all over the place. And, and I think it shows that there's deep emotion for Paul as he remembers what happened. When he was there in Jerusalem, he says, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. What do we have in Christ Jesus? See it right there. What do we have? We have freedom. There's the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of freedom. It's a declaration that a rescue has happened. There's been a a liberation, a, a rescue from this present evil age. Freedom that comes through the death and the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is that God through Christ frees people from sin for his glory. The gospel is that it is Christ who does it. It's all of Christ. In Christ, we have everything we need. Now, when Paul says these people came in, these false believers, he calls them, they're advocating something different. They're saying, to be saved, you must have Christ and be circumcised. And they're saying, this man Titus, he's, he's not saved because he's not circumcised. The work of Christ is not quite enough for him. Paul says, no, that is an enslaving message. If you try to add to what Christ has done, you will find there is no rescue from anything. There's no saving. You'll just be stuck in your sin. But you see how this is a delusion. Paul says these people who came in, he describes them as false believers. 
Now, they wouldn't call themselves that. They weren't going around saying, hi, we're the false believers. That's not their, their self-identification. They think they are believers. They think they're Christian. That they think they're saved. But they're not trusting that Christ is enough. And Paul says, if they're not trusting that Christ is enough, then their believing is false. It's a deadly delusion. And as Paul writes this, he's agitated. He's, he's bothered. He's bothered that the truth of the gospel is threatened. And the reason... And he says the reason why he stuck to his guns at the end of verse 5 is so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Uh, Agatha Christie, the crime writer, writer uh, comes from Torquay, where my in-laws are. There's a little plaque around the, around the corner from where they live commemorating her. Um, she often would use um, poison from flowers to kill people. That was one of her favourite methods. Um, uh, she particularly liked foxgloves. Um, she liked foxgloves because although foxgloves are poisonous, they also have medicinal properties. And there's not that much difference between a dose for medicine and a dose for murder. And if you get the mix wrong, well, your poison could be medicine or your medicine could be poison. Imagine that you knew about foxgloves. You might do. I'm, I'm imagining. But I don't know anything about them. Um, if you knew what was a deadly mix and, and, and you see somebody you love about to take a, a poisonous dose thinking it was medicinal, you would tear it from their hands as roughly as you possibly could. That's what Paul says here. He says, I, I can see this poison. It's masquerading as medicine, but it's poison. And so I tore it from your hands because he loves the churches in Galatia. And he knows if they go to a different gospel, they'll just not be saved. The gospel is that God, through Christ, rescues people from his sin for his glory. The gospel is that God does it. God saves sinners. The gospel is God-centered. It's fundamental. It's all about God. It's all about what God does for sinners in Christ, what God does for his glory. But if you want to add circumcision in, you're saying what God does in Christ, it's not quite enough. It's not all of God. You've got to do your little bit to add on to what Christ has done. And with your little bit, you'll take it into eternity. And in eternity, you will say, I'm here because I did my little bit. Yeah, Christ did a bit, but I, I completed the work. It's not good news. The things we do cannot save us. It's got to be all of Christ or it will be all nothing. And we need to be really careful that we don't think that we are somehow immune to this today. Now, the issue isn't circumcision for us, but we are, are exposed in all kinds of ways to distortions of the truth. Now, this last week, I was reading a contemporary pastor, theologian. He's well-respected. He moves in evangelical circles, goes by the name of evangelical. Uh, personally, I've benefited so much from things that he has written, but I read this week him say, we are to put our trust in someone or something other than the crucified and resurrected saviour. It's the same as saying Titus must be circumcised. And we see it everywhere. Now, what do we do with this dangerous delusion? Well, Paul says, we did not give in to them for a moment. We didn't budge. Now, imagine you're there in that meeting in Jerusalem. And, and this, the conversation, it begins to get a bit picky, a bit theological, a bit deep. And, and you start to think, oh, do we really need to go there? No, do, do we really need to, to get aggro about this? No, the temperature's rising, the voices are beginning to raise. Do, do, do we really need to do that? 
Now, wouldn't it be easier if we just, if we just didn't cause a fuss at this point? Now, maybe Titus should just get circumcised. It, it would keep the peace, wouldn't it? We wouldn't fall out over it. We'd be able to stay together. Wouldn't that be better? Paul says, no, not on this. Now, there are times when something little has eternal ramifications. For those who believe that Christ is not enough, they might go by the name of Christian, but they're not Christian. They're false. And anybody who listens to that message will be drinking poison, not medicine. So Paul says, we did not give in for a moment. We did not budge an inch. What about us as we sit here this morning? Now, as you sit here in this room right now, I wonder what gospel are you believing in this moment? Now, if this moment you were to, you were to go and meet your maker and the whole of eternity is stretched before you, what is your confidence now? No, before God, would you say, oh God, I've, I've done these good things. Would you say, God, I haven't been as bad as I could have been. Maybe not as bad as others. Would he say, God, I I know I might not have done everything, but surely I've done enough to to merit your heaven. If anything like that is in our hearts, it is false. Would you say on that day, would you say, Christ, that's it. Only Christ. I can only ask that what Christ has done is enough for me. There's nothing here. It all has to be of him. That's the gospel. Don't budge, not even for a moment. Don't, don't move even for a moment to, to even the slightest suggestion you need anything more than Christ. Only Christ. And if we ever come across anybody who's suggesting in any way that Titus must be circumcised or, or we have to do something more than what Christ has done, let's not give in for a moment, even if it seems petty. We've got to challenge each other so easy just day to day that we slip into thinking that our salvation will somehow depend on what we do. We can't be reminded too often that it's God who saves sinners and we're the sinners. That's the part we play. Our part is to be sinners. His part is to be saviour. Let him do that because he does it better than we can. Let's challenge, but maybe one of the best ways to challenge each other is to celebrate the gospel. Celebrate the gospel as often as we possibly can. Now, when I was younger, I was, I was a bit of an idiot, maybe more so than now. And I, I went to the pastor of my church one day and I, I said to him, um, <clears throat> I said, um, I, I don't think the cross of Christ is central enough in your preaching. And um, he, he almost wept. So, so, a dangerous delusion. Um, Let's not ever move from the gospel. Never move from it. No, it matters that we keep the gospel totally central. Uh, And when we do that, we do become dangerous. uh, But dangerous in a good way. Uh, The second danger that's put before us in this passage is not a dangerous delusion. It is a dangerous devotion. A dangerous like medicine. Uh, look, look what happens as a kind of outcome of this conversation as we track it from verse 7. 
In verse 7, we see Paul and the Jerusalem leaders, they've got the same gospel. There's only one gospel. And what comes out of it? Remember, the gospel is that God, through Christ, rescues sinners for his glory. God does it. So what comes from the gospel? Well, the first thing we see is that God is doing it. God is doing the work. In verse 7, Paul says, they, they recognize that I've been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel. Who entrusted him? God did it, didn't he? Just like God had entrusted Peter. And in verse 8, it says, For God, who was at work in Peter, was also at work in me. God's doing the work. It's what God does. God is entrusting people with this precious gospel, this declaration that God in Christ rescues people from sin. Paul is entrusted to preach it to the uncircumcised. Peter has been entrusted to preach it to the circumcised. But it's one gospel, it's the same gospel that's needed by everyone. Back in chapter 1 and verse 4, we see Christ rescues us from this present evil age. That's what Christ has done. And so now God is working, God is sending out his messengers to herald the message, herald the good news, to break into the slavery of this saving reality of Christ. There's this great virus that binds the whole of humanity. People from all places are dying because of their sin. But there is a cure. The medicine is there and it's needed by all. And it is spreading across the world. It's like medicine to a disease. The gospel is dangerous to the forces and the powers of this present evil age. The gospel is dangerous to the hold that sin has on people. That the power of sin is death. That the whole stranglehold on humanity is death. But the power of the gospel is to rescue from sin and to deliver from death. Christ bringing people through death into life forever. The gospel is a deadly thing. It is deadly to sin. It is deadly to death. And God is working. And he's working by entrusting the gospel to his people to take it to all. And we see three things that the gospel produces. Verse 9, it says, James, that's Jesus' brother, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, one of the disciples, these esteem, those esteemed pillars, these leaders of the Jerusalem church, gave me and Barnabas the right fellowship when they recognized the grace given me. Why do they offer this support, this fellowship? What's this fellowship grounded in? Is it that they say, you know, we, we like Paul and Barnabas. They're, they're good guys. We have a good laugh with them. We get on with each other. We, we support the same football team. No, they don't say that, do they? They offer fellowship because they believe the same gospel. That's it. Paul says, this is the gospel I'm preaching. They say, well, that's the gospel that we're preaching. And so they join together. Now, the churches that Paul plants, the churches that the Jerusalem church plants, they are built on the same gospel, the same foundation. And so they, they join together in fellowship. See, it's the gospel that does it. That these churches don't come together because they've got the same style or, or because they're trying to reach the same people or because they meet in the same places. They might not even like each other. They have fellowship, though, because they share the same gospel. Uh, Paul mentioned earlier, Paul Dutton, that we're meeting this evening with St. Neitz Evangelical Church and Christ Church, Camborne. Uh, why are we meeting with them? Not because we like them. Oh, we do like them, but it's not because we like them. We're meeting with them because we have the same gospel. We believe the same gospel. That's why we have fellowship with them. Oh, why do we partner with the fellowship of evangelical churches? 
and because we have the same gospel. It's not because we have the same style or we meet in the same places. It's not because we're the same size or anything like that. It's because we believe the same gospel. That's why we have fellowship. Now, why not come out this evening so we can celebrate that fellowship together? The first thing the gospel produces is fellowship. The second thing, verse 9, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. We should go. We should go. The gospel is that God through Christ rescues people from sin for his glory. Paul and the Jerusalem church had tasted that medicine and now they're compelled to go and tell others. And so Paul went from that meeting in Jerusalem. Do you know what he did next? He went to Galatia. And he preached the gospel there. That's why there are churches in Galatia. Now the gospel produces mission. The gospel demands to be heard. Now the unbelieving world is in danger because of the gospel. Unbelief will will die at the sound of the gospel. The gospel is God's power to save. Now why are we here in this room today? Why are there bums on seats in this room here right now? It's because of this gospel. The same gospel that they wrote about then has spread through the ages, across the places, to come right here today. The gospel produces mission. And then thirdly, verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. You remember Paul's visit to Jerusalem was because of the poor? Continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. It's not the same as proclaiming the gospel, but it's something else the gospel produces. A love for God and love for others, it draws a concern out to the needs around us. Isn't this brilliant? Isn't it? We we saw last time in that that little gospel summary, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, that the Bible worldview is that this present age is evil. And we belong to it because of our sin. And we see it everywhere. We get so dull to it and dumb to it. But it's everywhere. We feel it. We breathe it. We, we, we see the suffering and the oppression and the aching and the injustice and the madness and the badness. And we see it in the world around us. We see it within us. And we see it written over every graveyard that through sin came death and death has won. But it hasn't. It hasn't at all. This evil age has been invaded from above. The Christ has come. The Christ has come and he's died for our sins. And he's done it because he he wanted to. He willingly wanted to rescue us. So that by grace and grace alone, we might be delivered from all the muck and all the mess. And we might be brought into unshakable, everlasting fellowship with God Almighty as our Father. That's what Christ has done. Christ has done for us. It's what Christ has done for you. And God has not stopped his rescue mission. The gospel produces fellowship. It's just what it does. The new community of God's people spreads across the globe. The gospel produces mission. A dying world needs to hear that a Savior died to bring them to life. And the gospel produces acts of kindness. You ask yourself, ask yourself now, are you in on this? Are you in on it? I'm a complete idiot. My future is unshakably bright and anybody can be in on it. Are you in on it? I guess the question is, are you dangerous? Maybe do you want to be? Do you want to be a danger? Do you want to be part of this resistance movement and take up arms against the tyranny of sin? 
and go against that cruel oppression of death and fight against the sorrow that scars humanity. But we fight on it. Let's not budge an inch on the gospel. Instead, let's not not budge an inch on it. Let's build on it. Build on it. How do we build on it? We do these things. We invest in fellowship. We invest in mission. We invest in doing good. And we do it where God has placed us. Give ourselves over to this glorious cause. And most of us, that would just mean ordinary gospel living day to day. As we pray, as we seek to tell others, as we look for the needs around us so we can meet them with love. As we struggle with the disappointments that come again and again and again. As we weep with those who weep. But as we don't budge, we refuse to budge from them. And as we stand shoulder to shoulder with our church family to celebrate the gospel. And we do it again and again and again. Again and again and again. Are you in on it? Uh, this week I've been praying a prayer from the Valley of Vision, some prayers collected. I'm going to pray it for us now to close um, as we bring this together, as we respond to what the Lord is saying. Sovereign God, your cause and not my own engages my heart. And I appeal to you with greatest freedom to set up your kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify yourself and I shall rejoice. For to bring honour to your name is my sole desire. I adore you that you are good and long that others should know it and feel it and rejoice in it. I might love and praise you that you might have all the glory from the intelligent world. Let's for your dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But you can accomplish great things. Your, the cause is yours, and it's to your glory that may be saved. Lord, use us as you will. Do with us what you will, but I'll promote your cause. Let your kingdom come. Let your blessed interest be advanced in this world. And bring great numbers to Jesus. Let us see that glorious day. And give us to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let us be willing to die to that end. And while we live, let us labor for you. To the utmost of our strength. Spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is your cause, your kingdom we long for, not our own. Answer our request. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing together as we conclude our time. And just when the musicians come up, let's just take a moment uh, just to reflect, ask ourselves, how are we going to respond to what we've heard from God's word this morning? We'll take a minute to do that and then we will stand together and sing.